I don't know about you, but uh, for me, stories are powerful. I look for stories to, um, to enhance how I see things. I look for stories to uh, maybe change how I perceive something or someone. And so uh, 24 years ago, as a very young new pastor in a church, I was given the task of cleaning out the Awana room, which in that church meant sorting through all kinds of volleyballs and basketballs and plastic bowling pins and wadded up sparks and cubby vests and all kinds of literature and handbooks. And at the bottom of the stack, I found a book that had the very intriguing title, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And my heart jumped. I thought, whoa, a chance to see a new story and the greatest one ever told. And as I flipped open the cover, I'll confess to you, I was a little disappointed when what greeted me was the word Genesis. Because I thought, I know about that story. I'm looking for something new, something that can, you know, fix me or help me or, or expand who I am and what I do. And can I just tell you that 24 years later, It is the greatest story ever told, and there are things I've learned in the last 24 years by the Spirit of God working through people in His church, working through people teaching and preaching that have helped me see it in new ways, and Lord willing, should He give me another 24 years, it will continue to be the greatest story ever told, and it's alive. It's the living Word of God. So one of the things that's a challenge for us today is I'm going to probably say virtually nothing that's new but it's something we all need to hear. Normally what happens on Sunday mornings, and again, you all are uh, witness to this, many of you for a long time, that we generally will dig deep into a very small portion of Scripture, we'll exegete or rightly understand it so that we could rightly apply it, and we take just small chunks of Scripture, we go at whatever pace the Lord directs, and That's a very meaningful, very helpful way for teaching in the body. And so I'm thankful for that. This morning, I'm going to do something very different, though. Instead of looking at a microscopic view of a particular text, I'm going to take more of a panoramic view. And we're actually going to start in Genesis 1, and we're going to end in Revelation 22, all this morning. Wow. Okay. That's because I don't, I'm not very smart, so I just, you know, can't hit the top parts. So it tree of life. It's biblical theology. We want to understand this concept that God's given us in the tree of life. And what I want to do to orient us is give us uh, some pictures. So I'm going to put up a picture. So this is Abraham Lincoln. It's just simply a picture of Abraham Lincoln. It's what some say that the Bible is kind of like a picture or a portrait of who God is who God's people are, what he's doing in the midst of his creation. So it is one big story. And I think there's truth to that. I think that's a helpful reminder when we get bogged down in certain places in Scripture. We're like, how does this fit? It's part of a grand story. That's important. But I think it's more than that. I think it was designed to also have about it, what we see on the screen now is still Abraham Lincoln, but it's what we call a collage. A collage is a collection of pieces that form a complete whole, but each individual piece has about it and incompleteness. Now, I want to say to you, that's a little bit the way the Bible is, but it's a little bit off because there are pl- 
places in the Bible that are complete stories. In fact, when we know that story, we see how it fits into an overall big story. So what we would like to think of more so is the Bible is like a montage. It is still one big picture, Abraham Lincoln in this instance, but it's composed of multiple small pictures that are each and in of themselves complete pictures. It's hard for you to see the resolution and the size of this, but that is actually a collection of pictures of American presidents before Abraham Lincoln, after Abraham Lincoln, and the artist is basically saying one of two messages and maybe both, that Abraham Lincoln, as one of our greatest presidents, in many ways is being emulated or embodied in the best of the presidency. That when a president becomes president, if he or she would become president of the United States to embody the great president, Abraham Lincoln. But others have said, well, maybe, maybe it's, it's a collection of complete pictures where the best in each of those individual people form what would have been the best of our greatest president. So depending on your perspective, the idea is that the Bible is one complete story composed of many, many complete stories. It is a montage. So today, when we start in Genesis, we'll run quickly to Revelation. We're getting the overall kind of uh, telescopic view of things, but we also want to make sure we're being faithful to some of the microscopic things as well. I think you'll see what I mean. Let's do Genesis. We're going to go in the beginning, and I'll put the words on the screen, but if you are following along, we're going to pick five different small portions, what I'd call puzzle pieces, of Genesis with regard to this concept of the tree of life. Puzzle piece number one. In Genesis 1, we're getting part of the creation account, verses 11 and 12. It says, Then God said... Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. We're going to look at what this puzzle piece means in the montage in just a minute. But let's look at puzzle piece number two. In chapter 2, verse 9, the story continues. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A few verses forward, puzzle piece three. Genesis 2, 16, 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die, or certainly die, some translations say. Puzzle piece 4. The story turns. Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say 
You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And our final puzzle piece comes in God's response to the woman and the man believing the serpent. Verses 22 and 24 through 24. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he has, had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So let's pause for just a minute and let's put these pieces together. First, it's important for us to understand the context. There were a bunch of trees in creation and they were all good. Let me just say to you that I've heard people inside the church and outside the church misunderstand from the very beginning that some trees, some portion of creation, including maybe that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was somehow a, a bad something. It was not part of the good creation, that there was something about it that was askew. But let me just remind you, the character of our God, the one we worship, is far different than the one taught in any other religious system. This is a good God who does only good creation. It's not the kind of God that we read about in society or we see other people experience that he's all good except for some small portion that's bad, the shadow side of a good God. Or there's the opposite that's this all bad creature that is in direct opposition and equal strength and who knows who's going to win the day, but he's got a little bit of good in him and let's try to you know, get a hold of that. That's not the kind of, we're not a yin and yang kind of group. God is a good God who creates good creation and everything about the trees were completely good. That's important because when we go to the second point, these two trees were named and given distinct purposes in the middle of the garden. They were not one tree. Again, I've heard people say, well, maybe it was, was kind of like you know one tree that had about it fruit that could be good, evil, life. In fact, even Eve kind of says when she's interacting with the serpent, you know, there is the tree in the middle. But that's not what the account tells us. The account tells us these are two distinct trees for two distinct purposes. Let me remind you in the third point, the third picture, the third piece that we get, is that only one tree had forbidden fruit. Again, sometimes even in the church, we misunderstand and we think God forbade fruit from both the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. But actually, all we get is that he was forbidding the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we don't know that they ate from the tree of life, but odds are, with it being a good tree and bearing good fruit that odds are Adam and Eve were consuming life-giving fruit from that tree. So we begin to ask questions at this point, and this is where I think sometimes our faith, kind of we have to wrestle, where the rubber meets the road a little bit. We say, if one of the trees 
if both of the trees are good and one of the trees is forbidden, why is it forbidden? And the only thing I can tell you is that there's a part of who God is that says to us, not everything I know, you know, nor should you know. There's a part of who God is that can be unknown, and it's okay. In fact, I can tell you, and all of us, I think, can relate to this, there are things that I have seen or things that I've heard or things that I've experienced that I wish I could wipe them from my memory banks whether it was by my effort or someone else's effort. And I, the best illustration I can, I can give for this would be, I was serving on a jury one time, and before the trial began, the attorneys met with the judge, and the judge gave instructions to the attorneys about how the trial would run. One of the attorneys said to the judge, hey, this is evidence that my opponent wants to present that I know isn't relevant to the case and will distort what the jury's opinion will be, so can we have it you know, kept from the record? And the judge agreed. And the judge said, basically, yes, that's, that's uh, inadmissible evidence. And so both attorneys agree. The judge agrees. Jury is selected. I'm on the jury. We're in the midst of the trial. It was a five-day trial, so we got to know each other's jurors a little bit. About the third day, one of the attorneys asks a question. It was a very simple question. It was only one quick sentence. Immediately, the opposing attorney jumps up and says, I object, Your Honor. That was part of our pre-trial discussion. And the judge agrees. He says, sustained. He looks at the attorney who asked that very simple question, seemingly innocent question. And he says, Sir, if you do something like that again, I'll hold you in contempt. He looks at the court recorder. He says, strike that from the record. He looks at us as jurors and says, I want you to disregard that comment and do not consider it in any way in your deliberations at the end of this trial. The attorney who had objected said, but your honor, you can't unring the bell. And you know what? No matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard my 11 colleagues tried, in our discussions two days later, that one question, that one statement, that one sentence became the dominant theme of how we decided. You can't unring the bell. God knows there are some things that Adam and Eve shouldn't have known, and eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was going to expose them to that. And he wanted to protect them from that. There's another question that gets asked sometimes, though, and it goes back even to the root, maybe. Well, not just forbid the tree and forbid the fruit, but why even put it there? Again, from my perspective, what I, what I know of Scripture, who, who God is from what I know, is God knows that it's good for me and us as part of His creation to be denied certain things, to not always get everything we want or everything we think we need. There's something about being kept from certain things, though they're there, that we have to learn the discipline of that life, the obedience of that life. If that doesn't help you, I'll tell you one thing I learned as a young believer that I think has been very helpful. And that is, if you run into a situation where you don't understand God, you don't understand Scripture, you don't understand why He did what He did, or whatever, Someone said it this way. They said, all I know of God 
teaches me to trust him for all that I don't know of him. All I know of God teaches me to trust him for all I don't know of him. And there's really, that becomes the issue really in this fourth puzzle piece, right? This serpent and Eve have this confusing conversation. And I say confusing because there were facts, but they were distorted by mixing truth with lies. And here's the key. The character of God was questioned. The things that the serpent said to Eve, including that last little bit, God knows your eyes will be opened and you will know the difference between good and evil. You will not surely die. If God hadn't banished them from the the garden, they would have continued to eat from the tree of life. Everything the serpent said at the very end there was true. But what precedes it is a questioning of God's character. God's lying to you. He's not telling you the truth. So everything that follows is distorted. Even Eve is distorted. She talks about whether you can touch the tree. That was not part of the command. So this whole question becomes, is it good to ask questions of the Lord? Is it good to ask questions of the text? Is it good for us to ask questions when we struggle? I would say yes, as long as the question is asked in sincerity and because you want to be teachable. You want to be taught by the Lord. If, on the other hand, you ask the question out of a sinister desire to twist the truth, to get your way, then you, me, we become the instrument of that serpent, so to speak. The final piece. Again, probably one of the most misunderstood portions of Scripture by folks in the church, and that is that we think something different. But the truth is the banishment from the garden was one of God's greatest gifts ever given to humanity. Why? Because God knew for us to continue, for Adam and Eve and any of the subsequent children of them, to live in an eternal state, to eat from the tree that had life in it, in its fruit, to eat from that tree and to live in an eternal state of fallenness is one of the cruelest things he could have ever done. One theologian put it this way. He said, he said, when you think about sin and what it does, he said, sin in and of itself has no life. It only can live by sucking the life out of something else alive. Sin is not the opposite of righteousness. It is what attacks righteousness, attaches to it, and sucks the life from it. The theologian said, thus sin becomes a parasite in your life. The best illustration I can give you is, and I've never experienced this, but people who talk about it say, when you have experienced the torture technique of waterboarding, the life leaves you, so to speak, as the water rushes over you. You have the sensation of water filling your lungs, of you drowning. You fight for every gasp of breath you can, and then you die, basically, is the feeling. And They say when you open your eyes, the first thought in your mind is not, oh, thankfully I'm still alive. The first thought is, I hope that never happens again. I hope I'm not going to continue to be tortured or waterboarded or drowned. This is what life would be like for Adam and Eve and all of us as his descendants if we were to eat from the tree that had life in it 
in a fallen state, knowing good and evil and the disobedience that that brought. We would be people living life, expanding in our love for and our appreciation for and our righteousness, and then contracting as sin sucks the life out of us. We'd be alive and then dying and feeling dead and waking up and not really looking forward to living, but being afraid of dying again. So, again, it's, it's probably a simple thing, but it's something I've heard a number of folks, oh, that's God, he's, you know, he's just, he's not kind. He drives them from the Garden of Eden. Good purpose behind it. All right, fast forward, really fast. Revelation. <laughs> okay, remember our theme, Tree of Life. I spent quite a bit of time on the first few verses there in Genesis. But remember that God, he has this way about him in telling the story of giving us some foreshadowing and, and then completing thought, completing story. So what begins ends with certain uh, uh, certainty to it. And so in Revelation 22, we get this picture. It's part of John's revelation. Verses 1 through 3 says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse couple things that are important for you to know about this. First of all, this is what's called apocalyptic literature. The book of Revelation is this fantastic collection of images that come fast and furious at us as a reader, but more so when people were in a non-literate society, they were visions that were coming at them in audible story, and it was overwhelming. And the goal for the person telling the story was to say, this is an awesome, amazing place. And so some of the things we read in here are like, how does that work? So we got water flowing down the street. So this is kind of like Venice. So, you know, people don't walk on it. They ride boats. But you got a tree on both sides of the river. Do, do like the trunks stop above the water? And does it split off on the sides and the roots regather underneath? You know, that's not the point. The point is not to figure out how it all fits together. The point is to understand this is an amazing place. And it's a place that completes the picture of the story that began back in Genesis. It's also something to remember in the fantastic nature of apocalyptic literature that the writers of the apocalypse would use lots of Old Testament references because it was a great reminder of the story, where it had come from, where it was going to. And so if we had time this morning, we would look at Ezekiel chapter 47, the first 12 verses, and you, you say, oh my goodness, I bet John, in the revelation that, that Jesus is giving him here about what heaven's going to be like, is, is revealing things that Ezekiel prophesied. Because Ezekiel talked about flowing out of the temple of Jerusalem, Beneath kind of the presence of God amongst the Jewish people at that time, there was this stream of water. And as it went, it got bigger and deeper, and it went all the way to the Dead Sea, which 15, 17 miles. And guess what? When it got to the Dead Sea, if you've ever been to the Dead Sea, you know this, 
the Dead Sea didn't have anything in it. Why they call it the Dead Sea? I mean, it's, nothing can live in there. But this water heals the Dead Sea. This water in Ezekiel's prophecy heals and creates life. And there's all kinds of fish. And it provides food for all the people. It bears its fruit, so to speak. And so apocalyptic literature, these fantastic images and these Old Testament references, that's part of what John's doing here. But here's the other part. First of all, Ezekiel, his name, strength of God. Well, the tree of life, strengthened by the water of life, bearing fruit not just once, but 12 times, once a month, possessing healing in its leaves, not just fruit, but the leaves themselves have about them a healing characteristic, which puts us at that last little point that's the key to this, no more curse. Now we can live forever without that life-sucking disease called sin. If you're like me, you're like, wow, I saw the front of the book here, the first part, I see the end of the book, what happened in between. So, How did we get from Genesis where Adam and Eve and the children of Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, fruit from the tree of life denied, to the book of Revelation, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, who are citizens of heaven? Not everybody, not universalism, but those who who are characterized as citizens of heaven. How do they get that? They receive the fruit of the tree of life multiplied. How? How did this reversal of status, or some have said change of address, occur. This is what Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story. And in five minutes, I'm going to give it to you. You see, God didn't just talk about a tree of life in his story. He talked about a tree of death. In Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Again, Paul taking an Old Testament concept that certain crimes had about them the death penalty and death not just to die but to be a demonstration of something and cursed on a tree is, is you know, to send a message. Well, guess what? Paul takes that and makes that the truth of what, what the message is of Christ dying on the tree on the cross in the New Testament. This creates for us this idea that isn't it when we know our God, isn't it, isn't it kind of like Him to take something that really was meant to be an instrument of cruel death and turn it into an inspiration of compassionate life? That's kind of our God when you know Him in His character. But how does that work? This is what some theologians call the great exchange. So in 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not not just he did something with sin, he became sin. He, He embodied it. This is where sometimes, again, I wrestle with, we had just a couple months ago here, Good Friday services in this very place, and I always think Good Friday seems... I don't know, it just seems wrong to call it that because that's my Jesus on the cross. I don't see anything good about that in the sense of this is torture for my Lord. This is cruel. This is unnecessary. Well, except for because of me. 
And so good Friday is only good because it's good for us because we go from extreme poverty to incredible riches. As he takes on our sin, we become his righteousness. It's good Friday for a bad day for Jesus, good day for us, the great exchange. So when we think about all of this story, how would we tell this to someone? Put the puzzle pieces together. And this is kind of how I try to tell it to folks. God breathed life into Adam and Eve and gave them the fruit of the tree of life for food. When they chose death by disobeying and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God saved them from an eternity of death by, and I use the word quarantine, quarantining them from the garden. Jesus Christ, what Scripture tells us, is the second Adam, became the curse and died on the tree of death so that those who choose him might live the life of his righteousness. Our eternal heavenly home is filled with the fruit of life. God says, the curse is reversed. Come and enjoy. Some folks think heaven is going to be kind of a boring place because all we're going to do is worship. Some of you are like, man, we had 30 minutes of worship there. That's a long time. Eternity? And I had someone say one time to me, they, they said, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, after all, it's eternity. Aren't you going to get tired of it at some point? And I heard a preacher say one time, he said, you know what? I, I don't think it's going to be anything we're ever going to get tired of. Because the kind of God we serve, the kind of life he gives, it's kind of like they said, he said, you're going to look at God and you're going to see some aspect of who he is or what he's done. Something in the creative function of this, of this great God. And you're going to say, worthy, worthy are you. And you're going to bow in amazement. And then you're going to look up and you're going to say, Wow, there's another aspect of his nature or some other portion of his creation worthy. And it's going to be this perpetual life of worship of a worthy God. Odds are most of us in this room, that's just old news. Known it for a long time. Some of you, maybe, it's new news regardless for all of us it has to be what we stand upon as good news the greatest story ever told let's not ever get tired of hearing it let's pray Father, I confess that I'm always looking for the novel, the new, the idea that will somehow enhance. And like my brothers and sisters here, uh, we know that really it's the basic things of the faith. It's the basic things of your truth, the basic things of the Bible, and really the basic things of who you are that should compel us to continue to walk in your ways. Father, I thank you that your story begins and ends with life. I thank you that in the midst where there are difficult 
passages or difficult stories or difficult people that I don't always understand, that I don't ever have to question you as the author of this great story, you, the author of life. Father, for anyone here today who maybe didn't understand or maybe didn't agree, pray that your spirit would work in their hearts and minds in a way that would, that would help um, answer some questions, help direct them to folks who can share the hope of Jesus with them. And Father, that we as a church would continue to do all that we can to grow in Christ-likeness as we represent him to our community. Thank you for the story. Thank you for life. Thank you for the fruit of it. We thank you in the name of Jesus, the one who provided for it. Amen.